So it's 1978. I'm four years old. I'm four years old. How cute. Come on. Seriously. Come on. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My mom is making chocolate chip cookies. Now, you got to understand something about the Scott family. Scott family does not do dessert on the nightly. Scott family does not do dessert on the weekly. Scott family does not even do dessert on the monthly. Scott family is like every five, six months, you might get some dessert. So when mama's making chocolate chip cookies, it's a special, special day. And I was so excited. I remember being just this little kid. I walk into the kitchen, tiny little kitchen. You get all the smells come out of the oven, and my mom gives me a chocolate chip cookie. It's not even dessert time, people, all right? Like, this is mind-blowing to a four-year-old. I eat that chocolate chip cookie, and I'm like, that's amazing. My life has changed forever. And I say to my mom, mom, thanks for that chocolate chip cookie. I'd like another, all right? Because that's what a four-year-old does. And of course, mom says, no, honey, you can't have another cookie. Uh, But if you eat your supper well tonight, uh, you, I'll give you another cookie afterwards. I think we were having like friends over, something like that. That's why it was a special occasion. When you're four years old and supper's like three hours away, like that's in the time, I mean, like that feels like a quarter of your life. Like you got to wait until you're going to be able to get another cookie. So uh, my mom had taken the cookies and after they had cooled, she put them in this, I want to say it was this brown ceramic cookie jar. But knowing my family, it was probably just Tupperware, okay? Because I don't think we, I think I just always wanted a brown ceramic cookie jar. Because, like, that's just what every kid dreams of. But it was, like, a Tupperware or something like that. And she put it up. We had this, like, avocado green circa 1970s fridge. And she put them up on the fridge where me and my little sister couldn't get to them, okay? So uh, I want to give you all a, 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 a little pro tip when it comes to parenting, Okay? Uh, about half of our congregation is single, all right? Um, so there's a whole lot of y'all that, that haven't learned much about parenting yet. This is pro tip number one. If you've got young kids and they're quiet, something very bad is happening, okay? Like that pro tip number one right there, all right? My mom had two kids at this point. Uh, she was starting to get the hang of this, uh, and uh, she hadn't heard me say anything for quite a while. So she started looking for me. While she's looking for me, in the time that I'm quiet, uh, I realized that if I climbed up on the kitchen countertop that was right next to the stove, I could probably reach the cookies. And by the time she found me, I was standing on the counter double fisting the chocolate chips like that with my mouth full. Like it was amazing. Have you ever been tempted? I mean, like, really tempted. Dumb question, right? Of course you have. In fact, to be human is to be tempted. Why? Well, because God created us with the ability to love. The only way that you can love is if you have choice. And if you have choice, there will always be temptation. In our story today, we're going to look at Jesus and how he interacted with temptation. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. 
Uh, we started a brand new series. Jordan talked about, Freddie talked about, we're starting it today. It's just called Sovereign. You can't have the kingdom without the king. And so often we want to kind of put ourselves in that place, right? We want to play God in our lives, decide what's best for us, what's right. We try to tell God what he can and cannot say, what uh, he's allowed to, uh, to say is good and what he's uh, allowed to say is bad. But the problem is, is that the second we start telling God what he can and cannot say or what is right and what is wrong, we put ourselves in the place of God. You can't have God's kingdom and all the goodness that comes with it without God as king. Luke chapter 4, we just finished our series on the Holy Spirit over these last month and a half or so, and we actually pick up the story here in Luke 4, leading us towards Easter in this Lenten series, uh, with Jesus just being baptized in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit coming on him. The reason that the Holy Spirit comes on him is to empower him to be God's empowering presence in his life as he is now going to do the ministry that God has called him to do. So this is where we pick up the story here in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I would like everyone to please stand with me, and we're going to read it out loud together. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. But Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, please read with me out loud. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit comes on him. The text actually says that he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. Now, in Luke's gospel, uh, between Jesus baptism in the Jordan, and him being led out into the wilderness to be tempted, Luke gives us Jesus' genealogy, okay? Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the son of Adam, the first human, and then he says, even further, the son of God. Uh, Luke is trying to help us understand that Jesus is playing the role of a new Adam in the world. Uh, Jesus is becoming a new prototype of humanity. In fact, he's going to do what no human was ever able to do. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to choose God every time that the opportunity comes up. Uh, we see that he's actually playing this role uh, by a couple of things. One, he's let out into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 is a significant number. It's used all throughout the Old Testament, uh, even in the New Testament sometimes. But you have uh, 40 as kind of a number of preparation. All right, in the Old Testament, Israel, probably the most famous time we read about 40, is brought into the wilderness, their disobedience means that they have to have 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It's actually probably, uh, they, they enter in Jerusalem, uh, probably about this area where Jesus is then led out into the wilderness. 
Now, when we think wilderness too, a lot of times, like, because we live in, like, Michigan, we think that it's like Allegan State Game Area or something like that, right? Like lush and trees and green and rivers and, you know, like, that's not the wilderness that Jesus was let out. It's more like a desert, okay? It's rocky. I should have showed you a picture. I've showed you a picture before. It just think like rocky, no green, no water. Like it's just a really inhospitable place to be. Dry, dusty, hot, cold at night. This is where Jesus is led by the Spirit. Now he's led by the Spirit out there because God wants to prepare him for what's to come. Not only that, but he is actually going to deal with, in many ways, the same temptations that Adam and Eve experienced and fell, but Jesus isn't going to fall for them. Now, uh, we read the story, okay, and the first temptation is simply this. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. The devil comes to him and says, yo, you're God's son, right? You got to be hungry. Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Like, isn't that what God would want for you? Shouldn't you just go ahead and do that? But is the temptation here really food? I mean, is that really the temptation? Uh, on the one hand, sure. I mean, Jesus is human, okay? Fully human, fully God. In his fully human state, he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. Some bread probably sounds delicious, all right? Especially some fresh baked bread. Y'all ever had some fresh bread? Ooh, just out of the oven, right? Some butter, a little honey. Woo! All right. That's probably how Jesus is feeling, though, okay? The devil says, you should just take these stones and turn them into bread. That would, you could do that. Show off, you're God, right? You're really his son, right? You can do that. But the temptation is not actually simply about bread. You see, uh, Jesus knew that he had been given a mission by his father, something that he had to accomplish, and it was not time for him to die. Uh, Jesus also knew, I think, that he was going to be in the wilderness for 40 days. We're at the end of that 40 days when this temptation seems to come. Now, we don't know uh, if these three temptations that are laid out for us in the Gospels are the only three. Uh, I think that Satan had probably been tormenting him throughout this 40-day, but these are the three that are mentioned, and this happens at the very end, and I think Jesus knew it's, his time's almost up. He's going to exit the wilderness and begin his ministry, and there's going to be food. He's going to be able to eat. I don't think that he's like on the last day going to say, you know what, I'll just, I'll just take matters into my own hands, and I'll figure this out. I think he knew what was going on. I think what Satan was doing was exactly what Satan had done to Adam and Eve. He was questioning God's provision and care. Does God really care? Is God paying attention to you? Right? You're the son of God. Turn this stone into bread. And what does Jesus do? Jesus actually counters by quoting scripture. Okay? Now, we all know this. In fact, if you've ever been, uh, if you grew up in the church, you know that Pastors are always saying, like, the way to combat temptation is to have Scripture memorized. And it's absolutely true. It's a fantastic way to combat temptation. Uh, Jesus models that for us by throwing out Scripture to Satan. Now, uh, we don't get the full context, okay? Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Like, oh, okay, like, what does that really mean? Well, I think Jesus actually gives us a window into what this temptation was really about when we go back and read the 
whole context. So what I'd like for us to do, Jesus quotes the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. What I'd like for us to do is go back to Deuteronomy. We're going to read verses 2 and 3 to get a little bit more context of what's going on here. Kind of give us a key into what the real temptation was. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. This is Moses. He's speaking to the nation of Israel after they have come out of bondage, uh, slavery in Egypt, and have wandered for 40 years. He says in verse 2, Remember how the Lord, Yahweh, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. What's happening to Jesus right now? He's been in the wilderness for 40 days. The Spirit has led him into the wilderness, and he is being tested right now. In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. In fact, the word manna literally means, what is this? (laughs) That's what manna means. What is this? It was not something that they knew. The ancestors had never seen this before. They're hungry, and God humbles them by allowing them to be hungry and then shows that he is the place that will feed them. He is the one that will take care of them. And so he sends this, what is this food to them? Then we see what Jesus says, uh, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, you think that it's bread that's actually going to sustain your life. But it's not actually bread that's going to sustain your life. It's God. God is the one who sustains life. And dependence on God is where life is actually found. Uh, Dr. Daryl Bach um, says this. He says, Satan's premise is that Jesus' sonship must mean that God does not want him to starve in the desert. So the mighty son should simply turn stone into bread and meet his basic needs under his own Power, but Jesus understands that the request is not a challenge to be strong, but to be independent. You see that? The real test is not about whether Jesus is strong enough, whether he's truly God's son, whether he can do this miracle and turn these stones into bread. The real temptation is to say, Can I take matters into my own hands? The temptation was for Jesus to try to meet the need himself rather than to trust God to do what he had promised. Friends, you ever have that temptation? (laughs) You know how many times I've given in to that very thing? Like, I think to myself, man, uh, I know this is God's will for me. God wants this to happen in my life, but he's taken a long time to make it happen, so I'll figure out a way. Or, you know what, all my friends have this. It's not a bad thing. I want it too. I'll just make it happen. I'll go after it. I'll figure it out. If God's going to take his old sweet time, well, I'll just speed up the process a little bit. It's the desire to become my own God, to be independent rather than dependent. I don't want to be. In fact, quite honestly, man, we as Americans, how much do we love independence, right? We pledge allegiance to our independence. We are independent people. We're proud of our independence. And I'm not saying that that's always a terrible thing. But what I am saying is that independence from God is actually where we find death. Dependence on God is where we find life. 
Independence from God is actually weakness masquerading as strength. Jesus understood this. That's why when Jesus goes to the cross, he has to ask the hardest question. And it's not whether or not he will go to the cross. It's whether or not he actually believes that God loves him. You see, friends, I think the hardest question that you and I will ever ask ourselves, the hardest thing that you'll ever do, is trust God's love. That's the hardest thing you and I will ever have to do, is trust God's love. It's the hardest thing that Jesus, I believe, ever had to do. He had to trust his Father's love. That's why when he's in the garden, he prays, Father, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, like, please, But then he says this, but not my will, not what I want, but your will be done, what you want. Why? Because he trusted in his father's love that whatever God allowed or called him through or brought him through, God loved him and would be with him and it was always going to wind up in his benefit. The hardest thing you and I will ever have to do is trust God's love. I mean, that's a question that quite honestly will define our futures. Does God love me? Do I really believe that God loves me? Because however you answer that question will absolutely determine the outcome of the rest of your life. I promise you. Are his ways actually best for me? Does he really want me to have a flourishing life? Is he actually paying attention to me? Do I really believe that God knows what I need even better than I do? That's a hard question to answer sometimes. Do I really believe that God knows what I need even more than I do? Oh, there's a lot of things in life that I feel like um, are needs, but they're not, right? I started thinking of a list of things that I think like here in America, we, we kind of view as needs, maybe especially in GR. Owning a home. And then, of course, once you maybe own a home, then owning a bigger home. Maybe it's uh, having a better job, uh, having, having the same amount of stuff as what my friends have. Like, I don't need to have more stuff than they have, but I should at least have what my friends have. Like, that, that seems to be a need for so many, right? Good insurance, a good car, All kinds of things that we kind of raise to the level of needs. No, they're not needs. Millions of people around the world will never own their own car, will never own their own home, will certainly never own a bigger home. Not a need to live. Nobody needs the same amount of stuff that your friends have. We feel good about it, don't we? Especially if you've got a little bit more stuff than our friends have. Like, ooh, that feels nice. But it's not a need. But then there are desires, good desires, deep desires that we often can raise to the level of need. Things like conceiving children, good sex, or maybe any sex at all, getting married, recognition from peers, a fulfilling career, uh, maybe simply a level playing field where you feel like you're not constantly at a disadvantage. Real desires. And all of those are good desires. 
I started thinking about this this past week. What if those desires aren't met? What if those desires are your desires, but they're not God's desires? I started thinking about people I know and love. Can my gay Christian friends still believe that God loves them if marriage isn't an option? Can my friend who, uh, who suffered abuse at the hands of an older person feels like some things in her life were robbed, taken from her forever. Can she still believe that God loves her? What about my friend that uh, was born poor? My friend that was born with a disability and maybe won't ever have uh, the fulfilling job that they always dreamed of. Or my other friend who had an accident and now has a disability and wonders if life will ever be the same, can ever be the same. What about my friend who's infertile and so desperately wants to birth a child? Can, can, can they really say, I know God loves me? Because how will we answer that question? Does God really love me? Does he know my needs even better than I? Will absolutely determine the rest of our lives. You know how many times I've tried to meet my own needs, my own desires on my own? And I'm not just talking about like years and years ago. I'm talking about like recent history. I'm a pastor too. Like I've been a pastor for a long time, like 25 years. You'd think that like after like a decade, you'd figure this stuff out. Nope. The temptation that Jesus faces there in the wilderness, the temptation that Adam and Eve faced there in the garden, those temptations continue to hit you and I today. And I'll be honest, I find myself way too often falling into Adam and Eve's pattern than I do Jesus' pattern. I think it's kind of why I've always resonated with Jacob. Uh, Jacob is another guy in Jesus' genealogy. Um, Jacob's got kind of a crazy and I think beautiful story, uh, but Jacob's actually a twin. Uh, and he's the younger twin, which means he's the second born. And uh, in Old Testament times, the firstborn son was the one who basically got the lion's share of everything. He got the, the, the birthright, which was a, a double portion of the inheritance. Um, in this particular scenario, uh, it was expected that the oldest son would get the blessing of promise that God had given to Abraham, and then Abraham had given to Isaac, and now Isaac would have given and desired to give to Jacob's older brother, Esau. In fact, it's so interesting. Um, before Esau and Jacob were born, these twins, God gave a prophecy that the older was actually going to serve the younger. God had already determined how this was going to work out. Uh, but Jacob, uh, when he's born, Esau, his brother, is born first. And the text says that Jacob is grabbing onto his brother's heel. So his brother's born and Jacob's grabbing onto his heel almost as if he's trying to pull him back in and say, no, 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 I'm coming out first. I'm going to be the oldest. I'm going to get it. Uh, In fact, Jacob's name literally means one who grasps the heel. That's what the name Jacob in Hebrew means. 
One who grasps the heel. It's a Hebrew idiom, okay, for uh, a supplanter or someone who uh, is a trickster, a deceiver, somebody who tries to take matters into their own hands, okay? That's, that's what Jacob's name meant originally. So uh, Jacob was born. Esau also uh, has a, his name literally means hairy. <laughs> so I don't know which one's worse, but uh, Esau means hairy. Uh, in fact, um, he has a nickname Edom, which means red. So he's like a, a hairy redhead. Uh, and then Jacob is the trickster, the deceiver, okay? Now here's the thing, though. Um, Jacob lives up to his name, like the whole, his whole life. He, he tricks his brother, not really tricks, but his brother basically has been out hunting, has not gotten anything. He's famished. He comes back in. Jacob's been hanging out at the house. He's made some stew. His brother's like, dude, I'm starving. I'm going to die. Can I have some stew? His brother's like, Jacob's like, I'll give you some stew for your birthright, which is a double portion of the inheritance. And Esau's an idiot and he takes it. But what kind of a brother does that anyway? Like you got a big old pot of stew. Your brother's starving. And you're like, yeah, but only like, you know, give me the, the house and I'll give you the Snickers. I mean, that's kind of what he does. Jacob's always trying to work things out, trying to figure out an angle, right? In fact, a little bit later on, Isaac wants to give the blessing of promise. This is the promise that God had given to Abraham. Abraham had passed on to Isaac. Isaac wanted to pass it on to his favorite son, Esau. Jacob and his mom hatch a plan. They tricked their dad. He's old. He can't see very well. They tricked their dad into giving the blessing of promise to Jacob, okay? Uh, you're like, well, why didn't he just take it back? Well, at the time when you spoke a blessing over someone, it couldn't be taken back. And so he thinks he's speaking it over Esau because Jacob's put on Esau's clothes and he's like pretending to be Esau and he's like put on, literally put on lamb's wool. Like how hairy do you gotta be when you can fool your dad with lamb's wool, okay? Esau was hairy. So uh, he does this. He tricks his dad, basically, and steals the blessing of promise. And Esau is like, I'm going to kill him. And it's not just like, you know, two brothers that are, you know, chasing each other around with a butter knife. And one of them finally stops. It's like, fine, stab me. And like, okay, I won't. All right, this is like for real, like legit. He's going to kill his brother. Cut his head off, put it on a stake. Sure, everybody, don't mess with me. So Jacob has to flee, runs away. He's gone for a couple of decades. His parents are getting older. They're uh, uh, um, about to, to die. He's been gone for a long time. In fact, uh, his father, I think at this point, I can't remember if he's died or not yet. But anyway, it's been like 20-some years. Uh, lots passed, but Jacob has not talked to Esau the entire time. Uh, God has blessed Jacob, even though Jacob continues to not trust God's love, continues to try to work things out his own way, continues to try to make things happen for himself. God continues to bless him anyway. And so uh, Jacob's a rich cat now, all right? He's got a uh, um, couple of wives, a number of children. He's got huge herds uh, of like livestock and cattle. And God tells him in Genesis 31, I, I need you to go back home now. It's time. And he even says, and I will be with you. Now, Jacob, though, still doesn't fully trust God's love. He's afraid what his brother's going to think. He hasn't talked to him in 20-some years. So he sends a messenger back, tell my brother I'm coming. The messenger comes back to Jacob and says, hey, Esau is coming out to meet you, and he's bringing 40 or 400 men with him. That, that doesn't sound good, does it, right? 
the brother that you haven't seen in 20-some years, the last time you talked to him, wanted to kill you, is now coming out to meet you, and he's rolling 400 deep. So, even though God's already promised Jacob that he's going to be with him, Jacob still tries to take matters into his own hands. And so he tries to bribe his brother. He starts sending out flocks ahead to try to show his brother, yo, I'm loaded, and I like you, and please don't kill me, and here's some gifts so you can be happy. And, and then he does the, the most scoundrel thing that he's ever done. It's the day before he anticipates meeting his brother. And he's got his family in him, and he takes his family across the river, and he sets up camp for them there. And then he goes back back to the other side of the river where he's going to stay for the night. He's using his family like a human shield. I mean, you talk about like the lowest of the low. He's camping at what's called the Jabbok River. Jabbok literally means empty river. The, the, in the springtime when the rains come, it's full, and then other times it's empty, and that's where he's camped at. you got this empty man at the empty river, and then out of nowhere, it says that a man comes and begins to wrestle with Jacob. So weird. It's like out of nowhere. All right, Jacob's alone, and then there's a man, and they're wrestling. Now, if you've ever wrestled, you know, like, there's a reason that they make wrestling matches, like, three periods for three minutes apiece, all right, because you are all out. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know. Who wrestles? Is that right? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's hard. Wrestling's really hard. I wrestled my senior year of high school. Really bad idea to start wrestling your senior year of high school. You just lose a lot. It's not fun. Wrestling's hard, and Jacob's wrestling, and he's going at it with this man, whoever it is. Now, as we continue to read the story, we find out that this isn't simply a man. This is actually a messenger. In fact, some scholars think it's possibly even pre-incarnate Jesus. He's wrestling with someone who is there in the name of God, with the power of God, to deliver a message from God. And as they're wrestling, Jacob's actually doing okay. Until finally, the man touches Jacob's hip. Boop! And just a touch blows Jacob's hip out of joint. I've never had my hip out of joint. But I can imagine it's not a pleasant experience. And Jacob is left laying on the ground. There's nothing he can do. He's immobile. He can't, he can't stand up and walk. And he's grabbing the man's leg, this messenger of God who has the power of God to speak on behalf of God. And Jacob's laying there, and that's where we find Genesis 32, 26. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now that sounds like the most Jacob thing to say, doesn't it? I won't let you go until you bless me. Like I'm still in control. It's like the Black Knight in Monty Python, you know, where they're like fighting, he cuts off all of his limbs, and he's like, we'll call it a draw then. He's holding on to the man's leg, and he's like, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it sounds so arrogant. Like, are you kidding me, dude? But it's not actually. It's, I think, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. I have it engraved on the inside of my wedding band. Because it's at this moment that Jacob finally realizes who he's been wrestling with his whole life and who he's currently wrestling with. He realizes who he is and who God is, and he's hanging on to God's leg, and he says, 
look, I know who I am. And if I let you go, my life is over. My life is ruined. If I don't have you, I have nothing. I have to hold on to you. I have to be blessed by you. You have to change my life. I know who I am and I know who you are. That's the prayer right here in Genesis 32, 26. And it's in that moment that God says, what is your name? And Jacob finally says it almost as if he finally gets the full weight of who he is. I'm, I'm J- Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, the, the one who takes matters into his own hands. And God says, no more will you be Jacob, but now you will be Israel, for you have fought with God and have overcome. In other words, he's been wrestling with God his whole life, and he finally realizes when he's on the ground who he is and who God is. And he says, I want you, all of you, God, whatever it takes, whatever it means, I want you. And God changes his name. When we believe the lies of the evil one, when we give in to temptation, we find ourselves fighting God just like Jacob. Jesus knew that to distrust God's love was to destroy his life. To distrust God's love is to destroy his life because when we distrust God's love, we begin to do what we want to do, what we think is best, and we begin to fight against God himself. I don't know where you're at today. Uh, maybe, maybe there's something going on and you're standing right in front of temptation and you know it. Maybe it's a relationship that you've been slowly finding yourself falling more and more into that you know is not good. Uh, maybe it's something at work where there's an opportunity to get ahead, but you know you're going to have to cut some corners for that to happen. Uh, Maybe there's another temptation that is standing, staring right in front of you right now, and you know, if I just do this, I can make that happen. And God is saying, will you trust my love? But maybe you've been fighting God, actually, for the last number of months. Uh, Maybe you've decided you're going to take matters into your own hand. You're going to do whatever it takes, and you have been. And yeah, maybe some stuff's come of that. Maybe you got some of the stuff that you were really hoping for, but it wasn't what God desired, and it certainly wasn't in the way that God desired it, and you realize, I've actually been fighting against God, and even though I keep thinking I'm getting ahead, what I keep finding is that I'm actually losing. I'm failing. I'm going backwards, and God finally has you in a place where he needs you to be on the ground, hanging onto his leg. And maybe that's where you're at this morning, just like, man, if God doesn't do something in my life, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to handle it. What I'd like to do right now is, if that's you in either one of those scenarios, I want to pray for you. Today is a day that God's calling out, and he's saying, will you trust my love? Just as Jesus there when Satan is tempting him, he says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to be independent. I'm going to be dependent on my father because I trust his love. Just as Jacob was laying on the ground, hanging on to God, saying, God, if you don't do something, I'm toast. I'm through. I'm over. I trust your love. Maybe, maybe that's what you need today. So what I'm going to ask everybody to do is just close your eyes, bow your heads right now. With every eye closed and, and every head bowed, if that's you, like if there's, a, if there's a temptation that you know you're facing, you need to do something about, the spirit is like hard on, on your heart right now. I just want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Yes, I see that. Mm-hmm. Something going on that you know you need to like, you need to make a turn. 
Maybe you've been away from God for a long time. Maybe it's been last couple months. Maybe it's been years. And, and you're fighting him and you know it and you feel it. And you're feeling broken right now. Your hip's out of joint. Your life's out of joint. And you're just like, God, I have to, like, I, you've got to do something. If that's you, yes. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let me pray. Father God, God, you know what's going on right now. You see our hearts. And God, I will acknowledge that way too often I distrust your love. I don't want to go where you're leading me or I want what I want. But God, it always ends in failure. It's always independence from you. It looks like strength maybe, but it's always just simply masquerading weakness. And God, I don't want that and neither do those folks that raise their hand. So today, Father, we acknowledge your work in our lives. We acknowledge your love for us, that you know what we need even better than we do, and that you are trustworthy, that what you say you will do, you will actually accomplish. So Father, today we choose to trust, to trust again, to hang on and not let go, God, I pray for those individuals that raise their hand. God, they wouldn't just simply allow this time, as way too often I've done, where you've spoken to me and I know it and there's something that I need to do. God, don't let it just be a moment that happens here in this service. God, I pray for a boldness. A boldness, God, to tell somebody. Somebody that they trust that will walk with them, that will remind them of your grace that will remind them of your great love, that you are a God who redeems. You are a God who rescues. You are a God who takes dead things and brings them back to life, things that they can't even imagine could actually have life again. That's what you do. Father God, let that be true of us as a church, that we would trust your love. Thank you for being a God who keeps your promises. Help us believe. Help us trust. In Jesus' name we pray.